Number 122, we've just been asked to mark, and we'll use that later in the service this evening. We saw number 122. And at this point, certainly, we have the opportunity to yet again open the Word of God as we've already been able to participate so joyfully in the other aspects of worship as ordained and set forth and approved by God. It is, of course, at this point we can open His precious Word and allow it to resonate in our mind and to use the thoughts contained therein to encourage us in our walk each day in a way more pleasingly and acceptably before the eyes of our God in heaven. We have begun a series of studies on the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and tonight we come to the third installment in that series already at this point. We continue to consider some of the features in chapter number one this evening. Perhaps it would be well to recall some of the matters that we have been able to appreciate to this point. Inasmuch as Hebrews is sometimes termed the gem of the Bible, for it encapsulates and summarizes in a rather direct fashion much of the entire message of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And thus, to appreciate this book, one has to be a decent master of both Old and New Testament precepts and concepts alike. Furthermore, we have already come to appreciate that Hebrews is truly a book of wonderful encouragement. Those individuals to whom the book was written were sorely tempted to forsake the Christ and to revert to the Mosaic institution, and yet the Hebrew writer in 13 chapters will offer one reason after another as to why that was not only a poor decision, but rather it was in fact an eternally disastrous decision. And though you and I can also be encouraged to ever be loyal and faithful and devoted to Christ in the ways that you and I walk day by day, We've also seen carefully in the opening lesson and introduction to the entire book. We looked at the key verses as well as the key themes to be found in it. And in the second lesson, we noticed immediately the author presents Christ's superiority to the prophets. Tonight, we will notice his superiority to another class of beings. In fact, near the bottom of that slide, what about the angels? We understand, I think, still to this day, the role that angels seem to play in the psyche of many people. There are those who, in fact, pay great attention to angels. They often speak frequently about them. And there have been television shows that have been based, really, haven't there, on the subject of angels, the topic of angels. Wasn't it true, I think, that Michael Landon played the central role in a show one time called Highway to Heaven, I believe it was, in which... Basically, the character of angels was set forth. There was that show called Touched by an Angel, and the list could go on and on. And there are books that seemingly are frequently written, and often they do very well on the New York Times bestseller list. Needless to say that angels are indeed a topic of great interest, and they have been for centuries, not just recently. Back as far as the Middle Ages, there were those who, in fact, raised the interesting question, how many angels can reside on the head of a pen? And there were those who wrestled and discussed and debated that topic for decades. Might we say still, the topic of angels seems to be an important one in the mind of very, very many people. No doubt, as you and I read the sacred scriptures, we quickly appreciate that angels were beings of notable power. They were beings that had action at their disposal. And they were beings that seemingly were the emissaries of heaven itself. Surely their importance and significance then cannot be overestimated. 
In fact, they are directly mentioned at least 297 times in the Bible, meaning that that word angel appears in either the singular or the plural 297 times in the King James Version of the Bible. Those introductory thoughts only challenge us to ask, what are some specifics that are revealed to us about angels? Well, I've compiled a brief listing. I hope it'll be somewhat useful to us as we in a moment return to Hebrews chapter 1 and to see some of the points that the inspired writer was making about Jesus' superiority to the angels. The first thing to be noted is angels are created creatures, or perhaps I should say were created creatures. Inasmuch as we understand the six days of God's creative activity in which he brought the orderly nature to this universe and all things in it, there have been those who frequently have wondered, well, where do angels fit into that? Were they created during that period at some point? Were they created prior to that point? Are they eternal? Some have even suspected they really were not created. They're just like God. They're eternal. The scriptures will not support that latter view. In the 148th Psalm, verses 2 through 5, we have an explicit reference to angels as well as to a number of other things or beings that God created. And the summary statement is, Thou hast created them, everything in that list, and that, of course, included those angels that headed that list. They are thus created creatures. They do not bear the mark of eternality like God or like the Son, they, in fact, again, created in their nature and in their character. Might we also notice in Nehemiah 9, verse 6, that rather bold and terrific individual who, in fact, supervised the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. That rather encompassing statement that he made in Nehemiah 9, verse 6, in which he said, God has created all the hosts of heaven. So all the beings, such as angels that reside there, and perhaps others that are hinted at in the sacred scriptures, we notice that the writer Nehemiah there affirmed that God had created them. Perhaps to that list we could add Colossians 1.16, in which it is there directly spoken of relative to the Christ and the greatness of his activity in creation that he, in fact, in terms of principalities and powers, in terms of those beings that possess authority, even in realms invisible in heaven, were created by him. So we've learned already that the angels, far different than what some may think, were in fact created by the God of heaven. And what's more, we can also understand that they do, of course, reside amongst the host of heaven. It was Jacob, wasn't it, in Genesis 28:12? that had that interesting vision as he, of course, slept, that he saw a ladder reaching to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it and God standing at the top of it. It was that interesting scene in which he learned a valuable lesson about the protection afforded to him by God in that interesting set of events shortly to happen in his life. In addition to that, we notice in Matthew twenty-two thirty. Our Savior, in addressing a question asked of him by the Sadducees, they presented that interesting situation about a woman who had had so many husbands on earth because they had all died. And then the Sadducees asked, Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Wasn't it Jesus who on that occasion made reference to, There will neither be marrying nor giving in marriage, but they shall be as the angels of heaven. And again, referring, Jesus did 
to the existence of those angels amongst the heavenly host. In fairness to all of that, we can also add that the angels, we are told, do in fact worship God in the Christ. In the very chapter that you and I are now studying in Hebrews 1 verse 6, the statement that therein is made reads as follows, Let all the angels of God worship Him. Note the angels are thus referenced, and specifically so. And it was there said they'll worship Him. And the Him refers to the Christ. And it refers, of course, to the greatness of the deity of God. Thus we immediately learn from that passage alone that the angels themselves are not to be worshipped, for they in fact worship God in Christ. The particular emphasis then that is given in our world that allows the worship of angels is something that, of course, this text as well as the book of Colossians cannot harmonize with. If you'd like to perhaps add that text to what I have written on the slide and to study that this week, you may find some help found near the close of the second chapter of the Colossian letter. In fact, in Colossians 2, verses 18 on to verse 23, you'll notice that Paul especially rebuked the Colossians for beginning to give credence to the worship of angels, for angels were not and still are not those that are worthy of worship. In addition to those matters, what are some of the works in which you and I find angels participating? Perhaps a very, very brief listing might include these. We might well begin in Acts 5.19, where there we learn in the book of Acts that these angels, or this angel, was a very critical figure in releasing Peter and John from prison, and the angel said to them, Go and preach. The angel thus gave them the commandment to proceed to proclaim and declare the word of God and to do so with the understanding of the protective character of the God of heaven. To that we might add Acts 7 verse 53, where Stephen, in a rather encompassing statement, made reference to the disposition of angels and how that they had been involved in the setting forth throughout the ages of the will and desire and plan of God. So certainly angels have had an important work to communicate the will of God to the human family. Furthermore, as we've appreciated that primarily in the Old Testament, we understand their communication having been carried out successfully and in many cases very, very well. Can we not think of some places even in the New Testament scriptures where angels also announced some beautiful things? Wasn't it an angel that appeared to Joseph and made the announcement about Mary's situation? And wasn't it an angel that appeared to Mary and announced to her what she was going to do in the giving birth to this one that would sit on the throne of David and of his kingdom there shall be no end? Luke 1, verses 31 to 35. In addition... We can also notice that many others were blessed with being those that received messages at one time or another from angels in the New Testament or Old Testament era. In fairness to that list, can we not notice that these angels also were often critical participants in those that celebrated, praised, and worshipped God? I've again made a short listing for us to consider. In Revelation 7, verse 11, when that scene is given about the 144,000 and following that the innumerable host and amongst that the angels 
are those that praise the greatness of the God of heaven for what has been accomplished through the Son. In Revelation 22, verses 8 and following, a passage that, of course, would be certainly interesting given the study of this chapter. In Revelation 22, John, as that book of Revelation was drawing to its close, John was exceedingly thankful and highly appreciative for what the message was he had received. So thankful was he to the messengers of the angels that had delivered it that John fell and was ready to worship those angels. However, the angels quickly corrected him. See, thou do it not. Worship God. They knew they weren't the proper recipients of worship. They encouraged John to worship God and to adore Him and to in fact ascribe to Him the proper glory and honor. And so much so that as that slide, that slide comes to its conclusion, we learn another valuable piece of information about the angels. We especially learn in Hebrews 1.14 that they are described as ministering spirits. In fact, verse 14 puts it in these words. Are they, and that's speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? We thus are told in a very succinct way on this occasion that the angels in some way are ministering spirits, ministering to those who shall be heirs of salvation. That is to say, to the saved and the faithful. One could immediately ask, in what way do these angels minister to the faithful? What do they accomplish for the faithful? In what way, on a daily basis, do they involve themselves in ways that assist and help and in some way push forward the matter of Christ in the lives of the faithful? Perhaps one could wish for a rather deep and profound and rather penetrating answer to that question. And at this point in time, I can truly say I don't have the fullness of that answer. You and I can find angels doing many things in the Scriptures that are of benefit to you and me. And perhaps as we proceed through the lesson tonight, we shall have occasion to mention a few of them. I will thus ask us to return to that thought and perhaps its specifics in a piecemeal fashion as we proceed through the lesson tonight. But for now, holding that in mind, can we not make this conclusion statement to what we have learned thus far? We have thus seen that the angels, though they accomplish and do many things, communicating God's will, they were created, of course, they have been a part of announcing many wonderful things in the history of the human family. It still must be, in fact, emphasized that Christ is superior to them. Christ is better than they are for a number of reasons. And the author of this book chooses now to use from verses 4 on to verse 14, providing reasons as to why Christ is superior to this group of beings that we have discussed so far tonight. In what ways are Christ superior to them? Well, let's begin to look at a few of the things that might be noted. Because the first one in verse number 4 is put in language like this. Being made so much better than the angels... There's the explicit statement, Christ is so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. One of the first things that you and I might mention is the name that Christ is privileged to have and the name that God gave to him. 
because it is a name that is superior, better than the name given to any of the angels. Only two angels, as far as we know, are mentioned by name in the Scriptures. Gabriel on the one hand, Michael on the other. And yet Jesus' name is better than theirs. He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, to quote Matthew 1, verses 21 to 23. And didn't Paul join the refrain in Philippians chapter 2, when he made notice there in verses 9 through 11, speaking about the Christ and the excellency of his name, he says there that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess to the glory of God the fact of that great name that Christ had been given. We thus immediately learn that Christ's name thus should never be slandered or taken lightly. It should never be used trivially. As often as God warned in the Bible about taking his name in vain and thus using the word God inappropriately, certainly that also holds true for the name of Jesus. It is thus a great blasphemous thing when an individual uses that name Jesus in an ugly way, in a trivial way, in a frivolous way, in a slanderous fashion, because his name is great. So great that that's one of the reasons why he is superior to the angels. But that's only the first of the reasons listed in this chapter 1 before us. Because from here on to the end of the chapter, that matter of Jesus that is so often emphasized is his divinity, his deity. And the point that the writer will make is this. Christ is divine in deity, but the angels are not, nor were they ever. And thus that makes a gigantic chasm between Christ and them. That is one of the reasons as to why he is so far better than they. And just to make certain that we do not miss that point, not only does the remainder of chapter 1 emphasize it, he's going to use the bulk of chapter 2 to approach it from a different angle and assert again the Christ's superiority to the angels, not from the perspective of divinity, but from the perspective of humanity. And yet next Sunday evening, if it be the will of God, we'll look at that aspect of the Lord's superiority to the angels. But for now, might we notice verse number 5, the verse that was read in our hearing earlier this evening is the lesson text. It again reads, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And thus the Hebrew writer thus asks this question, To which angel was it ever said, This day I have begotten thee, thou art my son? Clearly the point is, that was never said to any angel. Never. And thus that rests secure in our minds to illustrate the greatness of Christ, for that was said of him and to him, but it was never said to any angel. And in fact, to emphasize that point, the Hebrew writer quotes in the Old Testament on two occasions in this one verse. And in those Old Testament passages, we'll need to recognize the matter under description. First of all, might we revisit Psalm 2, verse 7. In the second psalm, which is a very powerful and dramatic psalm, we find in verses 5 through 8, a presentation and a description of the greatness of the kingdom of the Christ. 
And in that very text, these words of Hebrews 1 verse 5 are quoted. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Notice that that was a prophecy of the coming Messiah, a prophecy of the Christ, and thus to him and of him it was said, This day have I begotten thee. And thus, that was not said of or to any angel, but it was said of the Christ. Can we not also see that other passage as well? For as the chapter closes, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That is taken from Second Samuel chapter 7. In particular, might we notice verse 14. That is one of the most interesting of the prophecies given by God to David. On that occasion, we might well recall that David was the individual reigning on the throne of Israel, and it was told to him in marvelous prophecy about the fact that his son Solomon would in fact occupy the throne. But hidden in the nature of that same prophecy, he said, there shall be another. And of his reign and his kingdom there will be no end. And of course that was a distant prophecy about the coming Christ and it was there said of him. In fact, Hebrews 1 verse 5, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Thus on two occasions, speaking of Christ in the Old Testament, these passages were referred to, but they were not referenced to any angel. And thus an angel can't be reckoned as the Son of God, and he can't be reckoned as one likened unto one that would be likened unto the Son of the Father. Christ, again, superior to those angels. But notice also what is to come. Nextly in verse 6, And again, when he bringeth the first to begotten into the world, he saith, Let him worship, or I'm sorry, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, who does the word him refer to? We've often laid emphasis upon the prepositions as well as the pronouns. And in terms of this, let the angels of God worship him. The him refers earlier in that verse to the first begotten. And thus that must be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one that would come into the world. And yet with respect to him, the commandment was affirmed, let all the angels of God worship him. It is a self-evident fact, isn't it, that if one worships another, then those worshiping are inferior to the one that's being worshipped. And yet if the angels are worshiping Him who is the first begotten, the Son, the Christ, surely Christ must be superior to them. In fact, it, notice as verse 6 begins, it says, And again apparently affirming that this too is a quotation of sorts from the Old Testament. You might notice that's found in Psalm 97, verse 7. Late in one of the Psalms, we have another reference to the angels worshiping that first begotten of the Father. So far, there has been a deep and rather profound argument. Perhaps we can digress a moment to notice. Why was such emphasis laid in regard to Jesus' superiority to the angels? Why was that so important? You and I might see it like this. In the first century, there was a very significant influence upon those things of invisible character that so often captured the attention of people. One of those matters was angels. And many people, not only in the heathen world, but also in the temptation for those that claimed to be somewhat Christian, were tempted to give, a, to give attention to the worship of angels. 
the Gnostic teaching, in fact, frequently embedded its teaching in the character of angels, and thus people were told, you need to worship angels, and you need to, in fact, adore and honor them. One of the first elements, then, that the Hebrew writer lays to rest is this. All of that that you've heard about worshiping and honoring and adoring angels as being equal to the Father, or at least being equal to the Son, that is incorrect and false to the core. Again, he lays that argument to rest quickly in the book of Hebrews. After noting again the Christ's superiority to the prophets, the next one on the list, his superiority to the angels. You can see as we close that list, we have several more verses to consider. Quotations from the Old Testament will be seen. And amongst them, might we appreciate as well the following set of ideas. It's mentioned twice, really, in this chapter. In verse 7, we find the first reference. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. As you can see there near the top, the Hebrew writer thus quickly affirms the, these angels to which we are referring, they are but servants. They are, if you please, from this verse, merely those that are ministers of God. Thus they aren't equal with God. They do not reside on an equal plane with Him. They are but His servants. And the fact that they are His servants implies again their lesserness, their inferiority to all that would occupy the abode of God. As you can see also from verse number 7, it begins again with the word and, which seems to continue onward from the notions that we have seen earlier. I wonder, is he quoting from the Old Testament again? Is there somewhere that reminds us in direct character as distinct to the Christ that the angels really are but ministers of God? As you can see, if we were to turn to the 104th Psalm, verse 4, we do in fact find the very passage that is present here. The Hebrew writer, very familiar with the Old Testament and quotes it freely. On this occasion, he calls to their attention the fact that in the 104th Psalm, in fact, these angels are there said to be but ministers of God, those who are servants of His. That's certainly a very interesting thought and a very powerful one at that. It would have been a great matter to those of that day to understand that thought clearly and thoroughly. However, let's push onward and notice what occurs for our hearing in verse 8. You'll notice that the first word in verse 8 is the word but. That word introduces a contrast. It sets before us a contradistinction from what had just been said to what he was now presenting. In the two to three verses before, he has quoted the Old Testament and affirmed that these angels are inferior to the Christ because they've worshipped him. We noticed earlier that it was to the Christ. He said, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. However, that was never said to any of the angels. Now you'll notice the contrast in verse 8 will present a very deep concept in one sense, but a very amazing one on the other. He says, but unto the Son. Remember in Psalm 104 verse 4, he had specifically referred to the angels as ministers, as servants. But, but, verse 8, unto the Son he saith, so somewhere we might ask, in the Old Testament, did he, in a prophecy that would address the Son, did he say, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Whereas the angels were but ministers, but servants, now we find it to the Son. Verse 8, thy throne, O God. One of the quickest and most powerful conclusions that you and I are thus able to draw, you'll notice in verse number 8 is this, the Son and God are one and the same. And unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. So anyone who thinks that Jesus isn't God, or that the Son is no member of the Godhead, are greatly mistaken, and certainly could make no sense of Hebrews 1.8. For unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, you'll notice, is forever and ever. This is directly taken in the Old Testament from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And thus in the days of the long past, the inspired writer David gave the prophecy about that day when in fact speaking to the Son, God would say unto the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. That implies and directly states, doesn't it, that His kingdom would be a perpetual one. It wouldn't be subject to the time character of the kingdoms you and I see on earth lasting for a few decades, perhaps a few hundred years, and then wanes into the dust bins of history. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. You and I, of course, can appreciate with gladness the kingdom of our Savior, the kingdom of God, that His throne is forever and ever. And as the verse goes onward, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Immediately we learn a thing that relates closely to our premillennial studies on Sunday morning. Christ has a kingdom, and anyone who affirms he doesn't is not a studious student of the Word of God. He has a kingdom today. He's reigning over it today, and the scepter that he holds in his hand is a scepter of righteousness, which in fact is a scepter of absolute rightness with regard to that kingdom. Can you and I appreciate then that this verse has testified that unlike any angel, thy throne, O God... The Son was called God. And the kingdom that He is ruler of is an, is an eternal one. It's perpetual in every regard. For isn't it still true that we read in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four that it is that same kingdom that the Son will hand over to the Father on the day of judgment? And on that occasion, of course, they'll be wonderfully admitted into the confines of heaven forevermore. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? And yet, as we push onward in this very chapter, we have already seen a host of Old Testament quotations that one after another have asserted Christ's superiority to the angels. As we look at what, come, what in fact, comes next, we find in verses 10 and following that another aspect of the greatness of the Christ is seen. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall all wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Immediately we notice what seems to be another very powerful set of passages. Powerful from the following perspective as he made reference to the Messiah, to the Christ, who again is asserted to be superior to the angels, 
he makes reference to the Christ's work in creation. Jesus was involved in the creation. He, in fact, was the principal figure in the execution of the creation. For do we not remember in John chapter 1, the opening stanza of that noble gospel account, we read there the greatness of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So without the Word, and the Word, of course, was Christ, without the Christ was not anything made that was made. Later in Colossians 1, we read in verses 16 and 17, For Jesus was the executing agency in bringing about the creative activity of the Godhead in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's as if God the Father prescribed or proceeded to have the thought in mind to carry it out, and the Son brought it to accomplishment. That verse that we have just listed for our study on that occasion, you'll notice we've referenced John 1 as well as Colossians 1, but in that list one could add a number of other passages in Scriptures. It's interesting to notice that in verse 10, there seems to be another quotation from the Old Testament. In fact, there is. If you notice with me in the 102nd Psalm, verses 25 and following, we find the very passage that's quoted here and applied to the Christ, affirming His activity in the creation and the carrying out of the greatness of God's will and bringing about the physical creation as you and I appreciate it. As one looks at all these matters... We can also be reminded of Hebrews 1 verse 2 earlier in this very chapter where Jesus is said to uphold all things by the word of his power. Notice also it affirms by whom also he made the worlds. One can't then doubt Christ's work in creation. There are those in our world today who call that into question. In fact, have you ever had conversation with someone or spoken with someone who will be quick to tell you that Christ really was the first of God's creative activities, that God created the Christ, and then that that Christ had a role to play, albeit a minor one, in the following creation? That's blasphemous to the core. Jesus, as God, is eternal. The Father didn't create the Son. The Godhead was there from the very beginning. And Genesis chapter 1 makes reference to all three of the members. In fairness, one might thus notice in this very passage, there's something that is listed for us as a contrast. Whereas Jesus, of course, is eternal, what does it say about this world on which you and I live and of which we are a part? What does it say about this physical planet Earth and the universe in which it exists? Note again the following set of verses in the following languages. It says in verse 11, They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall perish? Yes, indeed. This world isn't perpetual, is it? It's not going to last indefinitely. It is not going to remain in this fashion on and on. You notice in verse 12 it says, As a vesture shalt thou fold them up. Much like a garment that one would fold up and put neatly in a drawer. The day is coming when this universe will be folded up, if you please. And its finality will have been come. And it will have come at that time. All of that challenges us to notice 
what occurs next. We've seen such a dramatic contrast between the angels on the one hand and Christ on the other. You'll notice it, but two verses remain, verses 13 and 14. Because you'll notice with me in those verses, we have the following contrast set before us. To lead up to it, the closing words of verse 12 would be well for us to put in mind. It says again, But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. We need not be concerned about Christ dying. We need not be worried about Jesus falling out of existence in some way. Thy years shall not fail. And furthermore, in light of that, one more quotation from the Old Testament is now put before us. A quotation from the 110th Psalm, which in an interesting way, perhaps it might be noted, occurs as follows. That is the single most often quoted chapter in all the Old Testament. Interesting, isn't it? And it speaks of Christ all throughout it, but particularly the opening four verses. Because we notice the superiority of Christ's Messiahship and the greatness of His reign set forth centuries before by the writer David. As you'll notice, none of that was ever said of an angel. The point of verse 13 is this, But to which of the angels... Said he at any time, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And again, the point is easy to appreciate. He never said that to any angel. But he did say it in the 110th Psalm of the Christ. Of the Christ, sit thou on my right hand. Who reigns at the right hand of God today? Isn't it the Christ? Reigning over his kingdom, the church, and doing so in regal royal splendor? The point is, God never said those words to any angel. Can we not again see how great the Christ is and how blessed we are to be members of His kingdom and to be able to wear His name? We are Christians and we wear the name of Christ. That brings us, doesn't it, then to the close of the chapter. Verse 14. And in that verse we return to that passage we had noted earlier. Are they, speaking of the angels... Not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Here are just a few of the verses that tell us some of the things that angels do. In Luke 15.10 we read about angels rejoicing over one who comes penitently to the Father in obedience to the gospel. We also learn in Matthew 4 verse 11 how that angels appeared to the Christ, ministering to him, following his temptation there before the tempter. We also notice in 1 Peter 1 verse 12, the interesting feature where the angels desire to look into the blessedness that you and I now have. Furthermore, we can see in Luke 2 verse 13 that the angels appeared on that occasion announcing with great jubilation the birth of the Christ and the salvation that the human family would be able to enjoy. In John 10, verses 12 and following, we learn the angels again being aware of and a part of the joyousness that we share as Christians. In Psalm 34, 7, and even in the Old Testament, the angels surrounded those and protected those that were God's own in that era. In Luke 16, 22, we find angels mentioned as carrying the spirits of the dead off into the realms of, of the Hadean world. Do angels then occupy roles of ministering for us? Surely they do. 
And in Romans the 8th chapter, on our Wednesday night studies, we will shortly involve ourselves in some additional considerations of what angels accomplish for you and for me as Christians. Perhaps this evening, in light of all that we have just read in this opening chapter of the Hebrew letter, there certainly can't remain any doubt in our mind of the greatness of the Christ compared to the angels. And so perhaps some summary words could well be in order. And I have put them in language like this. As great as those angels are, and as often as they participated in a number of ways to aid the human family, and particularly those that were God's own, still we must admit and easily be acknowledged in terms of the Scriptures how much greater yet is the Christ. How much more wonderful and how much has He better accomplished for us than the angels ever have. It is in that regard and in that way we notice that Jesus is the Son. That's been told to us by a number of quotations this evening. We also affirm that He is the Creator and He is certainly the King over His kingdom. He is indeed eternal, and in all of that being affirmed, He is the one worshipped by angels, not the other way around. And so tonight, where do you and I stand in relation to our appreciation of the Christ? Do we honor and adore Him as the member of the Godhead that He is? For the kingdom over which He reigns? For the plan of salvation that He put in place? And for the great benefit and hope of heaven we are allowed to entertain by virtue of being those that follow and obey Him? This very night, that question must be asked and answered by each of us. One way or the other, we each will answer it as we stand in a moment and sing this song. For if we are in need of responding publicly, but we choose not to do so, we are, we are answering, Jesus, not now. I'm just not ready. I apparently, don't, I don't love you enough. I don't appreciate enough for what you've done for me. But yet, if we do respond, understanding that eternity hangs in the balance, and we, in fact, make that public response, if that is the need of our life, then we are saying to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to do something about the mistakes that I've made. I want others to know about that change, and I, more than anything else, want to be what you would have me to be. Tonight, then, as we each consider this song that Brother Randall has announced, if you need to respond in a public way, perhaps you've never become a Christian, you need to hear the word of the Lord, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His glorious name as the Son of God, and to be baptized. If we could assist you in that, we'd certainly be happy to do so. If you have become a Christian but no longer are faithful, then just like the Lord gave order to that church in Ephesus, He said, return to your first love. You need to do that too. And we could assist you by praying on your behalf tonight. We would only ask you to let us know in what way we can help and that you do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.